The Outspoken Bible. Conversations about the Word. A podcast from Scottish Bible Society. Welcome to episode 20 of season 5 of The Outspoken Bible. I'm Fiona Stewart. Neil Glover and Jen Robertson join me once again. Good day to you both. Hi. Good day, Janet. <laughs> Very good. Very good. We're getting some in-jokes, I like that. Correspondence has been flowing in and there's very much a household theme this week. So first up, I had an email from Ray Wallace of Fife who writes, Hi Fiona, just a quick line to say how much I'm enjoying your current journey through Acts. Each episode gives me something new to think about. The singing of the Psalms in jail, the story of the girl possessed by demons and how she was treated are just two examples. Also, I've been rereading after about a 30 and then she puts in brackets 40 year gap. The Face of My Parish by Tom Allen after hearing Neil talk about it. I have been blown away by its continuing relevance and by its prophetic word for the church today. So keep up the book recommendations. Look forward to the next instalment, says Ray Wallace. Now hot on the heels of Ray's message, I had this from Hugh Wallace, also a Fife. I mean, also the same household, to be honest. He says, hi guys, thought I'd drop you a note to say thank you for your chat, nonsense and challenging stuff that is sprinkled all through each episode. I was encouraged by my wife to listen to you three and started at episode 18, so I'm listening backwards. An interesting way to read. I might even try it when reading a gospel, he says. Anyway, he says thank you to me for keeping everybody in check and throwing in questions and tenacity. Uh, he also says thank you, Jen, for your down-to-earth analysis and your constant reflection on your own life and those you meet. And thank you, Neil, for your intellect, knowledge and yet willingness to learn new things. He says on the back of what you were saying, uh, he got a Kindle edition of Hoya Come Home by Jay Ruka. And he says that they're heading off to New Zealand on Hugman A to visit uh, son and family. And he's discovered that Jay is an Anglican dean in the town where they live. So there might even be a chance to meet up with him. And he says, I'll name drop you into that conversation, Neil, if that comes about. He also says he's picked up his copy of Tom Allen's The Face of My Parish. That's maybe because Ray left it lying around. Uh, and he said it's fascinating, not least how every generation of church has been struggling with the disinterest and apathy of its society and community. When, says Hugh, were the good old days? <clears throat> anyway, he says, I must get back to my backwards listening. I'm sure there are tons of people listening and being inspired and stimulated by your podcasts. So thank you very much, Reverend Hugh Wallace. Uh, meanwhile, I, the uh, son of the family, just to complete the set, the hat trick, Alistair Wallace, who of course works for Scottish Bible Society, friend to the podcast, uh, he forwarded me a message, that's Ray and Hugh's son, forwarded me a message that had been posted on the SBS socials from Louise Johnson. Thanks for getting in touch, Louise. Uh, she says, this is my favourite podcast. You really feel like you're chatting about the Bible with a group of friends, even though I've yet to meet the team. I think that's a huge, huge compliment because I think that's what we're aiming for, a conversation mm -hmm. amongst friends mm -hmm. about the Bible. So yeah. Yeah. thanks for saying that, Louise. Um, she says, sometimes serious, sometimes more lighthearted, but always interesting and relevant to our walk with Jesus. My faithful, long distance bus journey companion. Keep up the good work and God bless. Thank you for that. I, I'd like the idea that she wants the bus journey to last longer because she's listening to the podcast. Yeah. So you so, that, that thing where you miss your stop because you're so engrossed in something. Yeah, although although that slightly takes me to without giving away any plot spoiler, Shetland, where that's a key plot point, where oh, somebody yeah, overstays true. on a bus journey, it's not good for them. Yeah, that's true. I know. I mean, maybe if she'd been listening to our podcast, she wouldn't. Although I wouldn't like to claim that for. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I would go there, listen to our podcast, and it will prevent. It will keep you safer on murder-prone Scottish archipelagos. That's quite a claim, Neil. Although I've just That's watched the final episode. I don't think it's going to help her much. No, actually, I would agree, having also just watched the first episode. You're right. First uh, or last? Anyway, it is worth... Last. Sorry, last. last. Did I say first? Yeah. Last the episode, first... yes. If only yes. there was a, a scriptural uh, verse worth... about getting mixed yes, up Neil. between the first and the last. <laughs> First and the last, I know, exactly. I just like to keep that biblical theme going throughout my life. Um, now, it is also worth saying that Jen's had some correspondence recently from a listener about a particularly difficult Old Testament passage. And uh, we're really glad that, that we've become a kind of safe space where you can have that discussion. Um, please do stay in touch around difficult questions and so on. Uh, and for everybody listening, I know I bang on about correspondence, but it does go without saying that if you want to contact us and not have your message read out loud, we, of course, would honour that. We're not going to, uh, you know, betray any confidences or anything. Anonym an 
anonymity is uh, perfectly permissible in this situation. Uh, Jen, did you want to add in any more about about that conversation? Just that it was a, it was a great privilege to have that conversation, and I really enjoyed it. Good, good. Thank you. And I think also in, in that conversation <laughs> there was some there was some questioning about Neil's book, but what's happening with Neil's yes, book? Because we keep alluding think, to this book. Yeah. The, the listener was saying that she felt that there was quite a lot of conversation about it, but she didn't really know what it was called or what it was really about. And she wanted more information. So the book, it, it got finished last week, um, or at least it got sent Yay. off to the publishers. I know, I know. In such a way that the editor didn't reply and saying, please resubmit. So she sent it on to the copy editors. Uh, I'm sure there's still lots of work to do. Um, thank you to you both. Um, well, firstly, let me see what it's called. It's called Finding Our Voice, Searching for Renewal in the Mainline Church. And it's specifically about renewal of the sorts of churches that I belong to, the Church of Scotland, uh, Church of England, UK Methodist, it kind of those more broader institutional churches, but it also takes in the Presbyterian Church in the USA, Presbyterian Church in New Zealand and the United Church in Canada, because I think they're all facing similar problems. And actually, in the course of the book, we, we might go back to come to this in a bit, our kind of struggles go back hundreds of years to certain key moves that we made in our understanding of God. We'll come to that maybe later. Uh, so yes, called Finding Our Voice, the Searching for Renewal in the Mainline Church, and it'll probably be out in May. Um, I I was just checking, I give you guys an acknowledgement. Actually, I was very, very keen to give you guys an acknowledgement because you're a big part of it. So here's what it says. I wanted to just check this was this was okay. It says, thanks to those who first looked okay, at the early... Okay, did you publicly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to, I'm trying to get your reaction. Um <laughs> Thanks to those who first looked at the earliest drafts or were not hesitant to inform me of the need for some fairly serious editing. Not least. And then there's someone else. And it says, and my fellow podcasters, Fiona and Jane, who prevented me disappearing into a warren of my own geekery. And that's... Yeah. Thank you. That's very kind. I feel like I I was very committed at the start to giving comments and then there's... Life got busier and there was more chapters arriving. I kind of failed, so I'm glad I gave yes, something. And to be honest, I feel as though Jen was more committed than I was. I know you were. So you both came in at different points. So um, Jen responded to an early chapter one by saying, "This is really boring," um, and then I resubmitted <laughs> it, and she said, "This is much better." Um, and then I had written a chapter which was about another branch of the church to which you belong, Fiona. And uh, you I mean, had... I don't know why you guys are getting these terms, because we all know what branch of the church yeah, I belong it was, it was to. Anyway, yes, carry on. <laughs> and uh, what is it you... What is it when somebody listens to uh, a piece of media with a with an ear for how it will land on those whom it's describing? There is a name for that. It's a diversity check. Professionalism, Neil. Oh, it's got a more specific name. <laughs> anyway, you did that, so thank you very much. You're welcome. Are you giving us our surnames, or are we just going by our first names? In that section, it's surname. It's less formal. So, yeah. Uh, okay. I'm happy just to be Jen. That's fine. Yeah, I like my brand, Fiona Stewart. Anyway, <laughs> Neil. I'm moving my brand, Jen. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Neil, with all seriousness, we are very much, um, well, I speak for myself, Jen, but very privileged to have been asked to be part of the early stage of that. And I I have to say, having read bits of it, I'm very much looking forward to reading the rest of it. Absolutely. Especially because the first chapter will hook me in. Yes. The first chapter will hook me in and I won't won't give up. (laughs) I know. And uh, the Baptists and I will enjoy it. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Very good. Well, one more one more email before we uh, move on to Glover's Others. And this is from Dan. Dan lives in the States, so he is in our international audience. Uh, and he wrote to say, I'm not sure if this is the right place to send this, but I just wanted to give a big thank you to all of you involved with the Scottish Bible Society. I work totally by myself. Dan, I hear you. I also work mostly by myself. And he says, I'm reliant on podcasts and music to fill my day. I've struggled to find quality religious podcasts that reassure my faith and love for Jesus. But your guys' show has done just that. I truly look forward every time I listen to an episode. And whether I'm having a good day or a not-so-good day, you guys have provided a level of comfortability and helpfulness I cannot properly type into words. Just felt like letting you know, 
to letting whomever comes across this message know. You're all doing great work and thank you for enriching our lives. So God bless you from America, he says. Thank you so much, Dan. That's brilliant to hear from you. And uh, yes, as a fellow loan worker, I, I very much hear the need for good good quality audio. Uh, right, it is time for Glover's Others, though. Uh, we have just stopped humming after Delilah. Uh, but working back, we have had Eli, Delilah, Gad, Baruch, Abimelech, Amos, Isaiah, David's three friends, Hagar, Obed-Edom, Palmoni Almoni, Jethro's daughter, Rahab, Joshua, Balaam, Aaron, Jethro and Bilha. Neil, over to you. Who on earth are they? Where do they fit in? And what's their story? Glover's Others. B-list characters you really don't want to miss. This week, and here's a clue, because remember the theme takes in Abimelech Baruch. Who was the, who was the third one? I've now forgotten. Um, and then, uh, oh, it was Gad, wasn't it? Delilah, uh, Eli. It was going to be Zebedee, but because we're in the lead up to Christmas and because I was inspired by This Hope Is For Us, which is our kind of cousin podcast, a sibling podcast. Um, I'm going to do Zechariah. And there's a lovely line about Zechariah in This Hope Is For Us, where it says that God came with hope into the sorest part of his life. And I, I love that expression, alluding to the fact, of course, that Zechariah, who's the father of John, along with Elizabeth, um, he and Elizabeth had yearned for a child. In fact, Elizabeth talks about this as her disgrace. And God comes into that part. But what Zechariah sees is that God having saved, and we talked about that word previously, how that has such a big meaning in the Bible. It basically means God saves us from everything we need to be saved from. That God having saved in a very small place, um, and small in the sense of, small in the sense of it's somebody's body, but actually it's hugely significant in terms of how it matters. That God having saved in a small place, God is going to save in a huge number of places and for every person and in all sorts of different ways. So Zechariah, when he sings to God in his famous song in Luke chapter one, he has all these nuances of what salvation means. He talks about God rescuing us from our enemies. He does talk about God forgiving our sins. He talks about light shining on darkness and us walking in the way of peace. And I suppose as I think about Zechariah, I think of all the places where I would like to be saved, where I'd like to be rescued, where I'd like God to change things. And I think of how God in Zechariah's life did that. And he sings a hope that God will continue to do that for all of us. So Glover's Others is Zechariah. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've been directing a Christmas touring show and Zechariah features quite heavily in it. Oh, he has more verses in the Christmas story than anybody else. Mm. It's quite a thought, isn't it, that um, he didn't speak for nine months. That's a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. When something's anyway, so amazing we... to see as well. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, now, we are still looking for connection, of course, and that goes Abimelech, Baruch, Gad, Delilah, Eli, Eli <laughs> Zechariah. Yep. Now, okay, so any thoughts on that or anything else? Do contact us, outspoken at scottishbiblesociety.org. Last time we were in Athens, where Paul debated in the marketplace and at the Areopagus. And in today's passage, he is on the move again, heading west from Athens to Corinth. Now, we had advertised that we were reading Acts 18 right through to 19. I think we're just going to talk about Acts chapter 18, uh, which is Paul in Corinth, basically. So if you haven't had a chance to read that for a while, it's Acts 18, verses 1 through to 28. And now is your moment to pause the podcast and read that or listen to it before we start. Now, the Corinthians, we learn quite a lot about them because, of course, they have two letters written to them in the New Testament, as well as what we find in Acts. What do we know about Corinth? What's Apart from the fact they've got columns, Corinthian columns. (laughs) So Corinth is quite a new city and I think it's grown, well I think a good comparison is if Edinburgh is Athens, which is not a new comparison to make in the Athens of the north, then I think Corinth is Glasgow. It's the the newer city, it's the upstart city, it's the, I hope I can say this, is it the city of white boys? It's the city where uh, people are <laughs> pushing, a, 
<laughs> I know. People are pushing ahead. Hustlers and jostlers. It's on a trade route. It's the famous Isthmus, which is the small connecting piece of land. I think it's about three miles across. If we were in Scotland, we'd call it Tarbert, because that's a small bit of land that you can drag a boat across. And it's lots of traders there because if you want to go from the Adriatic on the east to, no, the west, sorry, to the Aegean on the way, uh, the east, then you go across the Isthmus rather than having to go around this big peninsula, the Peloponnese, I think it's called. And yeah, so through this trade, now it's also been refounded by the Romans because old Corinth was kind of destroyed by the Romans, but in 44, I think it was, just before he died, actually, Julius Caesar, in one of his final acts, reinstituted the city of Corinth. So everybody floods in there, they're doing trade, there's people from Arabia, there's people from Asia Minor, there's Turkey, there might even, some people think there might even be Chinese people there, and uh, they're bringing their slaves and their gods, and it's a whole melting pot, everything's in flux, and Everything is a little bit out of whack as well. There's a um, strong reputation for sexual immorality. I think there were thousands of temple prostitutes. And it's in that place that Paul comes with the gospel. And he, we also know that he made a bit of a resolution before he got there. Before he arrives in Corinth, he's made a decision. We discover this in 1 Corinthians. He says, I'm not going to talk about anything except Christ and him crucified. And we have to wonder why in particular did Paul decide to do that when he's moving to Corinth? So something very important about the identity of Christ and something very important as well about the nature of the crucifixion. And are you positing that as a, um, do you have ideas about why that is? You know, is yes. that kind of a rhetorical so, question that you're asking? Or? Yeah, so partly I think the identity of Christ matters Firstly, because that's going to matter when he talks to the Jewish population who he's going to go to first. But possibly also his Athens experience of lots of different gods, that's also the case in Corinth. So I'm going to talk about Christ. But the message of the cross, the emphasis that particularly comes to the front in Paul's letters to the Corinthians is the idea that the cross gets rid of human hierarchies and rank. So in a place where people are very worried about status and because status is in flux, people are even more worried about it. Sometimes people call this status anxiety. Um, Paul is going to show the people that there's something about the Christ, the cross and the humiliating nature, nature of Jesus' death that gets rid of all rank. And that's going to become very important when these kind of concerns about rank and status and ambition start leaking into the church. So I think it's a very status-obsessed place, and Paul's going to say status doesn't matter because look how God himself issued all concern about status by dying the most humiliating of deaths in front of everybody. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because because you would think, well, in my, in my sort of not having a great understanding of the um, Greco-Roman world, you would think Athens would be the place where status would be would be big, wouldn't you? But there seems to be a development in in how he speaks when he comes to Corinth. Yeah, and you wonder how much... So Paul has this phrase, I resolve to know nothing amongst you except Christ and him crucified. Is that that a reaction to Corinth? Or is it a reaction to Athens, the experience that he's just had there? I'm not quite sure. Uh Well, I suppose that's what I'm getting at. I wonder if there's been a development in his, his thinking. That, that builds on his Athenian experience. Jen, what did you make of it when, when you came to this this passage? Well, I was just thinking there that it's, he stays a long time in Corinth, doesn't he? A year yeah. and a half. Which which builds relationship. And it starts off with relationship, doesn't it? Um, he left Athens and went to Corinth and there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. And he goes and stays with them and he, and he works with them, whether it's tent making or something else. And... I mean, Priscilla and Aquila just there's a there's a they're a beautiful this is sound like a beautiful couple. They're so hospitable. They'll come back later on in this this these, this chapter being hospitable to other people as well. But I mean, it is his commitment to to preach Christ and Christ only because he loves them more. I, I don't mean he loves them more, but this is more a this is more his home. It's become more of a home, and he's more connected, mm. and he knows them, and so the there's a greater sort of holistic. <laughs> A ministry that's developing in Corinth yeah. for him. 
Yeah, I mean that would that would pick up, wouldn't it? On what what Neil Neil you just said something about you know him responding to the Corinthian situation, and that that would make sense, Jen, wouldn't it? That if he's there for three years, you can't help but but respond in, in what you're saying. Yeah, I love that he stayed and worked with them. You know, it's just it's just it's meaning Priscilla and Aquila, but we know that, don't we? That when when we do things with people, whether it's washing dishes or um, building a church or whatever. Um, relationships grow and develop you know side by side conversations deepen relationships more than having to sit and look at someone and trying to have a forced conversation so there's, there's that sense he's he's living his life with them and and preaching with them and sharing jesus with them and maybe there's a sense of deepening i think there's a few few kind of interesting things in there to do with firstly the nature of vocation I, I think I've told you this before. I met a Baptist minister in, in East London recently called Sally Mann. And she and her husband have lived in East Ham in the East End of London for 30 years, that very kind of incarnational embedded form of ministry. And they've also created a huge community project, but also very strong that their church is their church. So there are all sorts of really, for me, very inspiring things. But I said to Sally when I met her, how have you managed it? Because... I have met many people who have tried to do what you've done and it's absolutely, well, it's often wrecked them. It's been such an exhausting form of, of sharing the gospel. How have you managed to survive for 30 years? And her first answer was bivocationality. Uh, doing two jobs was her answer. And there was two aspects to that. The first was that it meant that they managed to create a team so they take one salary, I think they divide it between six different people, which means, she says, there's a team of us. So she says, my experience that things go wrong is when there's someone at the top of a pyramid, the apex, and everything goes through them, and it becomes too focused, and eventually, over a period of years, you can't cope anymore. She said, whereas leadership for us is like a mesh. It's absorbed by a whole bunch of different people. You can see that in Paul and the way that he's sharing leadership with Priscilla and Aquila here, and, and very often... His letters will begin with, you know, from Paul and Silas and Timothy. It's, Paul sees himself very much as a team. So there's that mesh that's able able to absorb. No, there's a shift for him um, mm. when Silas and Timothy arrive. Mm. He seems to stop doing the tent making. As if, uh-huh. I mean, you know, Silas, but Silas and Timothy are there. So they are they giving him encouragement? Is it like, I read somewhere that maybe it was a bit like a, getting a shot in the arm, like a booster yeah. jag. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it pushed him to be able to, to do more preaching or did it mean that because you're saying Neil, that now they were there there was a more spreading of the spreading building of the, the church really and he could focus but he could he could focus on exclusively to preaching as it says yeah well mm-hmm. it's interesting mm-hmm. so the the word is he devoted himself to the preaching of the word now does that mean that he no longer did the tent making or does it just yeah. mean that he you know that was his great passion i'm not the text is not terribly clear but the, the other thing, and just going back mm-hmm. to the Sally Mann thing, that she also said, I have another job. She's a teaches sociology. And that means that the church is not the, the only thing in her life. And she said that's also very, very healthy. And she said that it can also become a problem for people if the church is their only thing. Then, you know, if things are going wrong, then, yes. you know, it kind of dominates your whole life. And I find that really interesting that that bivocationality often we say that's a kind of well you don't have enough funds so that's what you do to get by but she actually saw it as a positive advantage and it strikes me that some of the most effective church plants within the church of scotland are where people have been paid part-time to do the job rather than full-time it it seems to give them a breadth within their own lives um so yeah it it just strikes me as being quite interesting that would be that would be borne out yeah, that would be borne out, Neil, I think, in, not just in within your denomination, mm. also. I don't want to sound like, you know, speaking on behalf of the Baptists. Speaking not, I'm on not behalf of everybody else. Today, but, but having done... Well, no, thinking about church planting and planting mm. mission of community, obviously I've got yeah. some experience of that, and, and in a bivocational context. Yeah. Um, that would seem to me to be quite a healthy way of leading. Yeah. Um, and I think it would also... I think that, you know, what what you just said, that, that she said there about it, it, it being healthy, I think it's healthy for the individual mm-hmm. because it, it does mean that, that it's not this all-consuming thing but also I think it's healthy in terms of the people you meet and, and how that feeds into your view of what your ministry is yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so you're more rooted in reality yeah, yeah you're rooted in reality because 
And again, yeah. I, I don't want to sound very critical around this, but I think sometimes there can be a danger, isn't there, that that you know, run, running the church, keeping the keeping the thing going, can become so all-consuming that everybody mm. else is just kind of sucked into that, rather than yeah. having that sort of broader picture of well, actually, you know, I'm here to equip the saints. So, what does that look like for the person who's working in the bank or doing working in a care home, you know, whatever it is that, that that people do week by week? I don't, I don't know. I think I think it keeps you rooted, doesn't it? If you yourself have a foot in in, I don't want to say real life because all life is real life, but yeah. in another side of life, I I love that it it all starts with a friendship, and yes. I think we underplay that well in life <laughs> and the importance of friendship. That friendship really matters and really makes a difference. And I would love to know the backstory about how they met Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and how that friendship developed. Um, sometimes we raise other relationships maybe higher than friendship but really the new test jesus and the the rest of the new testament it's it's friendship isn't it that builds god's kingdom i think Mm. i'm very interested in the fact that paul very rarely tells his churches to share the gospel you know I, I, i don't know about you but you know i've often been in churches and in fellowships and in organizations where we made a big deal about creating opportunities for evangelism we talked about friendship evangelism or getting a light alongside people he very rarely tells his his communities to actually do that and I, i've been perplexed because clearly he does want people to share the gospel so so why is he not telling people to do it i think there's two things i think firstly Paul sees evangelism. He just takes it for granted that people are going to be meeting with people yeah. around about them. He just seems to assume that people yeah. are going to be with out quotes outsiders all the time. To the extent that he seems to think it's quite likely that outsiders are going to come into the Corinthian worship, for example. Yeah, there's a little verse that talks about that in First Corinthians 14. So Paul, it doesn't seem to even cross Paul's head that that the church will become some kind of isolated. Um, independent autonomous sect it it, it will be interacting all the time what he's far more concerned about is that human barriers of distinction do not exist within the church it's something we talked about before that people are united in christ and therefore if you're a gentile you don't feel um excluded because you're not a jew you're if you're a slave you don't feel looked down upon because you're with people who are either freed people or, or masters. Um, and if, if you're a woman, then you feel just as part of things as if, if you're a man. He's absolutely determined that once people come in, the, the distinctions, people feel at home, they feel like, like they belong. But the other thing that yeah. evangelism does seem to involve, and this maybe is only for certain people, like Paul and Apollos, is these big kind of, can I say set-piece events where he'll, he'll go to the synagogue and argue or Apollos will argue so it seems to be this two-stranded thing of natural interaction and then moments where you publicly speak sorry i'm, I'm laughing because it feels like you just did it <laughs> feels like you were giving a speech oh right yeah 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 <laughs> i know it's yeah. conversation yeah 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 um yes no that that's that's really helpful isn't it and can it can i just dig in a little bit to priscilla and aquila i suppose they i was reflecting um as you were talking there neil that, that they would have my my initial thought was they would have been people who'd be of interest to Paul because they've travelled, they're not just from Corinth. But then I was thinking probably a lot of people who lived in Corinth would not just have come from Corinth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they would, I guess, be quite typical. Would that that be yeah. fair to say of, of those who find themselves washed up on this isthmus? isthmus. Um, and there's refugees status going on here. The people are being uh, kicked out of uh, where they were and they're gathering in Corinth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, unlike yeah. in Athens, because there wasn't a synagogue there. Is that no, no? So that's that's a uh, Philippi, isn't it? Philippi, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. so Corinth has only existed for ninety years. Um, so maybe mm. we can also compare it to Cumbernauld. Um, that a that there is a sense that nobody's been there for a long, long time. Everybody's been travelling, but it is interesting, isn't it? So Paul seeks out um, Aquila right at the start i wonder if it's the tent making it seems to be slightly related from the fact that him and priscilla have just been uh, evicted from rome uh, they're they're jews mm-hmm. and of course he comes from pontus which is on the black sea as well so he's he's fairly well traveled yeah, this he's not actually from rome uh-huh. no no yeah. mm-hmm. um and then later on they'll go together to ephesus 
he seems to really like being with them. And there is, like Jen, as you said, there is this lovely sense that they were they were people who welcomed others and and mm. and really were co. I mean, he describes them as co-workers, doesn't he? But and, and there seems yeah. to be an equality within the relationship. There's something quite mm-hmm. beautiful about all of that, really. Yeah. Mm. Uh, what about? Uh, so we've we've kind of touched on on Corinth and what it was like and the diversity of all of that. So do you think there is something around what you just talked about in terms of the unity and the lack of division that particularly speaks to that sort of society? But you, so was, Paul is quickly opposed, isn't he? Uh huh. Is that is that part of what what the, the you know there's an opposition here and it pushes him it pushes him away. I don't know if this is really answering your question, Fiona, but it pushes him away from where he would naturally go and where he habitually yeah. went to the synagogue. Um, and he, I mean, he's quite he's quite hard, isn't it? What he says, you know, shaking yeah. out his clothes and yeah, no, I'm not having any more to do with you. Um which pushes him out into the wider community. Although, interestingly, then Crispus and, and his entire household believe. Yes. <laughs> who is the yes. synagogue leader. After Paul's saying, this is all done. Is I like that because it shows that God's bigger. Bigger than even Paul might say. Than Paul's plans. God's yes. still working. Yeah. I, I think the opposition, first of all, see, see, is not so much around the status thing. I think that creeps in later i think the opposition is 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 you just said is to do with naming jesus as the christ and that first of all becomes a problem uh-huh. amongst the the jewish um community um i was yeah a couple of things that struck me on that we had our messy church uh, just a couple of days ago and um we talked about the nativity and christmas and a wee boy who was sat next to me stuck up his hand and said he was wanting to grab a hold of the mic. He said, uh, I've got a fun fact about Jesus. And he, I thought, okay, that's fine. So I handed him the mic and he just went, Jesus is not God. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> no. I know. So um, where, uh, so immediately I said, oh, where did you hear that? And he pointed at his mother from her. <laughs> he said. And I, it struck me that in that moment, there was something in me that that was almost a kind of desire to, I don't know, defend the godness of Jesus. I, I don't know, there was something in there, and I can relate to that in Paul. And interestingly, um, the next day I was with a missionary couple called Wackus and Selena who are over with us, and uh, I was sitting in a coffee shop, and he I told this story at our prayer meeting, and uh, Interestingly enough, there was someone who joined us or next door at the coffee shop who wouldn't normally go to church. And Wackass, quite uninhibited, started talking about how, how jealous he was for the reputation of Christ. And if we didn't have Christ in Christmas, then, then not only was Christmas less, but we would become less. And he was explaining this to someone who doesn't go to church and is fairly sceptical, I would say, or not sceptical, but weary. I'm going, Wackass, Wackass, this person is not a church goer. You know, they started defending the reputation of Christ in front of this person. Yeah. And, and it, maybe there was a bit of that that's going on with Paul and some of the discomfort of that. Interestingly enough, um, as the person left, they turned to Wackus and said, "Send me your QR code, and I'll send you a donation." Brilliant, <laughs> yeah. brilliant, interesting, good story. I mean, I wonder. But we could get off on a whole tangent there, isn't it? But I, I wonder if that's about how we understand the Trinity and how we explain it to children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, we've had that conversation before, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. but evidently it wasn't just a child's perception. Yeah. Maybe there was a whole conversation that we get on. You don't know what that conversation was. It'd be interesting to know what the, the child-parent conversation was. But we've talked about before, if we don't talk about the Trinity, uh, well, we lose we lose a, a lot, don't we? <laughs> if we don't have Trinitarian thinking. And we tend we tend to, that we need to think, speak simply. So we just talk about Jesus with children. We don't talk about God the Father, uh, God the Spirit. And that I think that language needs to change. Hmm. Yeah. And we, we talk about God when we really mean God the Father, often. Yeah, I think. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yeah. maybe our words have created that situation. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Good story, though, Neil. <laughs> that's that's interesting. So the importance of Christ, and so and that being a particular importance within within this context, both for for Jew and and Gentile to hear about that. Um, I'm quite interested in the fact that in uh, our previous, well, not not in our previous episode, the episode before, we were talking about Philippi, and we had the man from Macedonia. We had a clear instruction in a vision. We've got a different clear instruction here because mm. the last one was about come over here, move on. This one is mm. is stay here, Paul. 
And um, what do we what do we make of that? It's a brilliant it's a brilliant moment, isn't it? The, the, mm. the dream, the vision he has. I, mm-hmm. To have God speak to us so clearly, or I mean, well, this, that's how it's recorded. I don't know how Paul actually experienced, it, but I, you know, don't be afraid, keep on going, don't be silent. I'm with you. Um, and and I have many people in this city that sense that God God's there already, which we're yes. all always told, aren't we? It's, like a, yes. it's not us bringing God into the situation, but God is there already, and there's people there a lot. In fact, it's a bit reminds me of um, oh, I'm going to forget the El- biblical Elijah? character, Elijah, Elisha. Yes, no. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. When God mm-hmm. says, yeah, God mm-hmm. says to Elijah after Mount Carmel, because um, Elijah, oh, there's nobody. When he has it, no, there's nobody else. I'm all alone, and God says. No, I've I've met I've many who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. similar kind of encouragement, isn't it? Yeah. Doesn't doesn't bring him bread and <laughs> ravens don't bring him bread and stuff. That would be nice. It it takes me to something that we actually alluded to last in our last conversation with your two with your hero um, Andy Root, where he's talking about uh, watchwords, <laughs> which I think we did talk about in the last conversation. But I've been I've been very interested in how management talk has come into the church often in quite a secular way and one response is to to say oh be gone with all management but another response is to actually say well how do we re-enchant it because actually management stuff like visions and mission and so on did come from the church in the first place and I'd be very much of the second school that we take this thinking and we make sure that we reframe it within a paradigm within a view of faith and your pal Andy Root says that one of the ways that we must do that is that we must pair mission statements with watchwords and mission statements tend to be about what I'm going to do what we are going to do sometimes called the mission missio ecclesia the mission of the church and then watchwords are about what God's going to do and uh, Andy Root he takes his example from the story of Martin Luther King. So Martin Luther King, in a very bleak moment in the early days of the civil rights movement, uh, he's in his kitchen uh, home uh, in Tennessee, I think it is, and he picks up the phone one evening. He's already really tired, and it's someone on the end of the phone threatening to kill him. It's his first ever death threat, I think. And uh, he's he's absolutely exhausted, and he's broken, a bit like Elijah. And he feels God saying to him, stand up, stand up, Martin Luther King. So he stands up at his kitchen table and he hears God say to him, "Um, where there is no way, I'll make a way. Where there's no way, I'll make a way. And that word about what God is going to do, this watchword, not only inspires Martin Luther King, but also sustains the early days of the civil rights movement. So frequently in really bleak situations, they say to themselves, no, God has said, where there is no way, I'll make a way. Now, it strikes me that in Corinth, we've got something similar. We've already got the mission statement. We've got Paul saying, I am going to preach Christ and him crucified and nothing else. That's Paul's mission. So mission statements are a good thing, I think. But then we've also got this watchword where God comes alongside in a very similar situation to Martin Luther King and says, um, my people are here and you will not be harmed. And it, it it's just a reminder to me that in our work, in our strategic work, we need mission statements, but we also need these watchwords which draw attention to what God is going to do. And that seems to be a very good example in this situation. It's also encouraging, I find these words um, that God speaks to Paul because it means, so God says, don't be afraid. So it means Paul was afraid. He says, keep on speaking, which means Paul wanted to give up. He says, don't be silent. And Paul just wanted not to say anything. And he says, I'm with you. And Paul felt alone. You know, God saying these to Paul means that Paul feels like me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, because we, it's a whole raising of someone up into a position, although Paul's just amazing. Paul never felt any of these things, but he did. And that's mm-hmm. why God had to say these words. And I find that hugely encouraging. And, and God does say these words to us. And it's do not be afraid, isn't it? We're, we're, all of us is the middle of Advent and we're heading towards Christmas. And you know, the angels say this all the time, don't they? Don't be afraid. Don't be yeah. afraid. And here's God yeah. saying that to Paul. Yeah, and it reminds me actually of, you know, in Acts 21 where um, Peter's gone back fishing after after his denial of Christ, mm. isn't he? And then, and then you know, the default we often have, I think, is to go back to what we know mm-hmm. and almost sort of, oh, just, you know what, I'll have an easy life. It, it, there's a wee bit of that here, isn't there? Maybe. 
I'll just maybe it's I'll just have a quiet life in Corinth and make tents and other things because it wasn't just tents, was it? But you know, I'll, I'll work alongside Priscilla and Aquila. I'll just stay quiet. I'll live a live a quiet life. I I I can empathise with that hugely, and it reminds me of Peter. I'll just go back to the fishing because I don't really know what else to do. And because of these words, so Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. Because of those words, was he, was he actually thinking, I'm going to go? Which is interesting because he'd had the opposition, but he also had huge growth. You know, lots of Corinthians are hearing, hearing and believing and being baptised. You wonder if he was in the verge of, of leaving. But because of these words from God, um, he stays on. And it just shows that we need... We, Everything we do, we need that relationship with Jesus. We need to be and God, Father and the Spirit. Uh, we need that relationship so that what we're doing is rooted in Him talking to us and Him being with us, not just stuff. It's not just become stuff we do. That's a real risk. As yeah, well. and I wonder if it's is it a refresh of your mission statement, your personal mission statement. Uh, I mean, I've had a bit of an experience of that in the, in the last few while because, as, well, as you two know, I, I was I had I was all set to go and do something quite different um, partway through this year, and God really really intervened and it was one of those kind of watchword situations and and it was about a reminder I think of of what he's made me to do that that yeah it, it, there's a kind of realigning so it's not that it's at odds with the the mission statement aspect of 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 where you start out but sometimes you just need those little those little checks along the way to remind mm. you of, of what you know mm-hmm. that makes sense to say that yeah I think as well um you know you were talking about, well, this kind of echoes what you've been saying, Jen, that, you know, I don't know if he was tempted to go back to tent making. I wonder if what he was tempted to do was to move on to the next city, which is what he's always... Yeah, that's, that's actually Yeah, no, that's, and I think yeah. that's what you said, yeah. 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 Um, the, the, and actually this represents a shift in the way that Paul does things. So up until now in Acts, he's like, every place he's been, it's been like two or three weeks and he moves on two or three weeks. And that's been really effective. And Paul's probably thinking, I'll do what I did. Barry is one of the ones where it happens. You know, he's just there. He gets the opposition and then he moves on to the next one. And you couldn't say it's not worked. Of course it's worked. But this seems to be the point at which he moves to, well, I hesitate to say long term because certainly in my denomination, Church of Scotland, you know, an 18-month ministry is still a short ministry. But it's definitely longer than it's been before. And it's a very different way. I mean, I just love this because I think that the Corinthian church for me is often the one I identify with the most and it's the one where Paul has the the most a obviously painful transparently difficult relationship but it's it's I think it's one of the ones that's one of the most fruitful relationships that we we see in the whole of the New Testament maybe I was thinking yeah I was thinking as well of this the, the vision and Jesus speaking, just uh, I've been reading Amy or Ewing's Advent book in the mornings uh, for Advent. And this morning she was talking about Mary's song and the book's called Mary's Voice. And how Mary says, uh, the mighty one has done great things for me. And there's that sense of God, the great God who does all these incredible big things, but he's personal to us. And she talks about the, the name El Shaddai which you can correct me, Neil. But you know, it means that personal God, the God who connects with us. And we see this beautifully in Paul, don't we? That it, it's not just all these big things he does for God or that God is doing, but that there's a relationship. Which back to your book, Neil, because it's about encounter, mm, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That encounter with God is so important yeah. in the mission of God. Absolutely fundamental. Yeah. Hmm. Talking of relationship, can we talk about Apollos? Mm. Yeah. What do we think about the relationship with Apollos? He, for somebody who doesn't get a lot of billing when we're, you know, you don't really hear about Apollos in Sunday school, do you? He actually plays quite a big part in the book of Acts and, and, and in the letters as well, doesn't he? And he, he's very smart and educated uh-huh. and learned and he's a brilliant communicator. In fact, maybe he's one of those people that you'd be like, oh, I need to get him to speak. I need to go and hear him at a conference. I need to go and read his book. But... Because he had great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, that's why I underlined. But he doesn't—he doesn't know the Holy Spirit. He doesn't know the baptism of the Spirit. He's stuck with the baptism of John, which is just a baptism of repentance, I'm presuming. Um, but then Priscilla and Quilla come alongside them, lovely Priscilla and Aquila, and they take him home. But they have this very direct conversation with him. Mm. It's not just like come into the house and have a nice time, have some cake. Um, 
they explain the way of God more what's adequately that's the version I'm reading that's it yeah sorry I, yeah. I just thought it's a really great encounter but he sounds like quite a guy Apollos uh-huh uh-huh it's interesting that we don't we don't know all that much no um Luther Martin Luther speculated that he'd written Hebrews and I, I think there's a a strong oh really yeah mm. yeah there's a strong uh-huh. he's a strong candidate um they I think what I love about Apollos is that who Apollos is is different from who people make him out to be. So, as Jen's already said, he's he's very open to learning. Um, the if I can hark back, the nice thing that I hung on to, and I know this is not always true, but Hugh Wallace said um, Neil brings something like intellect, but he's open to learning. Now, oh, that that were always true, um, but it, <laughs> at least it appears to have been the case once or twice, uh, and may and and that's what we learn from Apollos. And you know, he's the guy who probably passed all his exams in Alexandria. You know, that great center of learning. Um, he's top of the class. Big library. Big library. <laughs> he's in the library all the <laughs> well, time. I think that the library. The library was was the library later. It was burnt down anyway. by this point. I think hadn't Julius Caesar. Oh, burnt it was it gone by this point. Yeah. Yes. But he's still right. passing it. You know, class prize again goes yeah, to Apollos. I've been to Alexandria. Have you? Yeah. In your <laughs> tours of the. Of the I have East. actually. Yeah, it's a bit like my bit like Damascus, Neil. <laughs> yeah. Where's the place you hadn't? Didn't been? read any books when I was there. But yeah, uh, yeah. So Antioch. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, but. But Apollos is, is open to learning, and I, I just love that. But the other thing, there's a there's an element of comparison in that last phrase. He says he powerfully refuted the Jews. And there's maybe an element where some people in Corinth, well, we know this, um, are going, oh, he's much better at that than Paul was. When Paul dealt with the the Jews, it was it was much more problematic. Well, look, Apollos, he just sticks a ball in the back of the net. And that actually creates problems because, as we know in First Corinthians, there's factions develop. Some people saying, "I am for Paul, I am for Peter, I am for Jesus, I am for Apollos." And what Paul does, though, in the first section of First Corinthians, is he he casts their ministry not as competition, because remember the Corinthians—they're so ambitious; everything's always about competition. He says, "No, it's not that. We're complementary." So I—he he sees the church as a building. I lead the foundation and Apollos built on top of it. Then he sees the church as a plant, a garden, and he says, I planted the seed, and Apollos watered. And Paul is determined to see their ministry as complementary, but those around them are sometimes keen to see them as competition. And it's, once again, plays into the whole Corinthian thing, that Paul is totally against any spirit of competition. It's all about Jesus holding us all together in all sorts of different ways. And mm. and Paul leaves, mm. you know, because of that. You know, Apollos is is doing all this teaching. He's he's saying the same message that Jesus is the Messiah. And then it says, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. So he's as you described, he's willing mm. to step back. Mm. I I I don't think. Well, I think I'm trying harder to do that. I don't think my generation are very good at it, mm. of stepping back and saying, actually, there's somebody doing, a uh, what I was doing. I I need to let them go on with it and develop yeah. and leave God to work with them and I'll I'll go to the interior or wherever that yeah. might be mm. the equivalent yes you know there's another job for me to do I th- you know I, I think I'm being challenged quite a lot of that as I get older that I need to I need to be aware of that and be ready to let That's others massive, I mean I, I, yeah I was at a conference a few weeks ago and uh, there was I ended up at a table with Young, three young women who, well, I say young women because they're younger than me. They weren't particularly, they were in their late 20s, early 30s. And I was just reflecting on how the event I was at had nobody of their age making anything happen. Everybody was older than me that was yep. making things happen. And the conversation I had with them was just fantastic um, about what they were, what their ministries were and what, the, what they were involved in. But there was such an imbalance in the bigger structure of the church. Mm for their not just their voices to be heard it's not just about that this isn't about paul's apollos's voice being heard or paul's voice being heard it's about who's who does god want to work in this place at this time being ready and, to move and on. therefore yeah. who needs to step aside i i cannot yeah. agree with you more on that because i actually had a very similar experience also at a conference i don't think it was the same one because <laughs> you weren't at it um but i was well i was praying with somebody actually who who has a position of leadership and she's 30 i think 
certainly around about 30. And, and one of the things I, I felt overwhelmingly as I was praying for her was just that sense of she needed to step into that leadership. But actually that involves other people round about recognising she's not, when you're 30, you're not 18. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. and, and, and unless our generation steps back and says, okay, on you go. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And 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 then, and then this, the thing perpetuates. I feel so strongly about this at the moment, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I said about when I'm describing this young women, that's completely based on my uh-huh. age. They're, they know they're not young women. There's and there's also you know there's younger, much younger people in that. Like you know, yeah. if I'm reading about Mary every morning of Advent, I mean she was probably in her mid teens, and she's so. I mean, I just she's so important in the story of God's salvation, Mary. And yet, what's happened in the church? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's quite salutary that the disciples were probably older teenagers. So come Pentecost, you yeah. know they're in they're in their early twenties, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they and their lifespan would be a lot shorter as well. Yeah, yeah. of course. That's part yes. of our problem, isn't it? That there's, yes, there's, we well, live it longer. is. <laughs> it is absolutely yeah. no. Yeah. But I'm I'm with it, and I'm I'll say it right here, right now, publicly, Jen. I am very open to being challenged around that. If at any point you see that in me, that I'm not letting go of things, yeah. Please me do too. call it out because I'm, I'm yeah really up yeah. for that. <sighs> right. <laughs> Neil, anything you want to add? Well, look, I've got a friend who sometimes <laughs> from, says... From under your blanket. <laughs> I know. I've got a friend who sometimes says it's the job of the church to challenge, to listen to the old, challenge the young and suspect the middle-aged. Say that again. Listen to the old, challenge the young. And suspect them. Yeah, I think there's something in that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's also something around second half of life, isn't there? Mm. There's something about, you know, the, the kind of the second part of your life. Sorry, Jen. Yeah. No, the listening... To, I was... I was doing some listening to people who are older than me in the church. And I was really sad because I got the feeling from them that they thought nobody wanted to hear them. So even before we l- listen, I think there's a for that, are an older generation need encouraged and supported to speak so that we can listen to them. They were just like, oh no, we, we don't have anything to contribute. And I was like, but you, you've been in the church for so long and you've got so much wisdom so much experience we need to hear from you like no 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 I, I don't know what to say but then as we chatted they did say a few more things so it, it's creating that space i've told you before i think about lydia son who's a korean american korean pastor who um went to church to be minister in the early 30s when ev- the average age was like late 70s and she was completely freaked out by this because she felt people are so different from me and the kind of um transformational moment happened when an 80 year old woman he burst into tears on her because she'd, I think I've told you this story, he burst, he'd fallen in love, she'd fallen in love with a man who was married uh, to another woman and she had recognised that nothing was ever going to happen because of that and she was absolutely devastated and Lydia commented that this was the conversation she expected to have with a woman who was in her teenage years rather than a woman who was in her 80s but it led her to um, basically go on a research exercise because Lydia is quite academic and she researched because there were too many 80 year olds she restricted it to the 90 year olds and she asked them questions about their passions their longings she asked them about their sex lives actually it was it was quite remarkable and she discovered that um, these older people were exactly the same as her um, in terms of their passions their desires um, their their ability to be human and two things in that were important in that firstly for Lydia she herself became less afraid of aging because she saw that she would retain her humanity as she grew older and that she realized that was something she was frightened of losing but the second thing was that the participants were absolutely delighted to take part in this because of what you've just said Jen and one of them said, I wish my granddaughter could hear me having this conversation now because this is we never have this kind of conversation. Yes, I we had our messy church on Saturday as well, Neil, and uh, we had a nativity trail and we went outside to hear the story of Christmas from various characters like Joseph and Mary and shepherds. And I went round the trail with a friend who is in our, who is a, who's a, Number of number of decades older mm. than me. Uh, I don't want to say people might know who she is. I don't want to say give her. She might not want to have her age proclaimed in a podcast. Um, but we went round round the trail together because it was quite snowy and slippy, and it was it was just such a beautiful moment to share. I you know I, 
we were both older women, but she's a bit older than me, and to talk about the Christmas story together. And I just, I just long for these moments in our churches that eight generations of different people would talk like that way you've described, Neil, and really get to know each other. And by getting to know each other, we can be drawn closer to Jesus. Very good. Well, I think we're going to draw things to a close at this point, unless there was anything else that jumped out that anybody wanted to, to talk about. What would, your, what would your takeaway be for today? Neil, mm. under the tent. I'm keen to let Neil speak because otherwise he might um, suffocate, I think. <laughs> I just, um, I, I'm holding that image of Jen walking around with that, um, that lady who's of the undisclosed aged. Um, yeah, I'm also just thinking about a, what you were saying about a letting go to. There, there, were, there were two points in this podcast, um, Fiona, when I think you became particularly unanimated, if I might psychoanalyze you for one second. One was on the, one was on the need to pass on to the younger generation, and the second was the nature of planting churches where you have another job whilst you're doing. I don't, I don't, yes, I don't really do it now, though. But anyway, yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, I do. Have, I have many jobs, though. Planting churches is not one of them. Uh, right, great. Okay, so um, what's your takeaway, though? Those three. I'm having three. You've not actually said what... So I'm, I'm having three. Jen with the woman walking around her church and you becoming vociferous about bivocationality and handing over to the next okay. generation. Th- those, those are more just images, though. Is there anything... Is there anything... Oh, okay, that's fine. No, that's fine. I'm taking them. Jen, that, by what, definition, what I'm taking them away. Okay, it's fine. I think I thought it would have been the thing of Paul moving on and letting Apollos get on with it because I, I really had not thought about that until we started having the conversation. But I'm going to go with uh, Priscilla and Aquila and their hospitality um, and their love and their ability to make friendships. And because they do that, they can have good conversations and difficult conversations. But I'm sure, you know, with Apollos, I don't say maybe it wasn't difficult, maybe it was perfectly fine, but meaningful conversations. It's only in friendship and opening our homes or opening our lives. It doesn't have to be our homes uh, that we can have the kind of chats we have about God. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Well, that's my takeaway, Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, that sounds good. Mine is around the watchword stuff. I had not, until we started speaking, uh, thought about some of its application to my own situation at the moment. So that's helpful. That whole thing of... Uh, you know, just I read something actually in preparation. I think it was in, in Tom Wright. He talked about um, it's a reminder that that nothing happened within the early church that wasn't prompted by the Spirit. So whether that was going or whether that was staying, there was always that looking, looking for the watchword. Um, so yeah, that's that's gonna be my takeaway. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, uh, Jen. What's the Jen? What's the gen? Trying to keep What's up with gen? reports, trends, research findings and the latest thoughts? No time to What's read or listen to all that valuable content? Look no further. What's the Gen will keep you up to date, in touch and on the ball. What's the Gen? your guide to current thinking. Today's Gen is a, some, a research review, really, that was carried out by the a Boys Brigade and Youthscape. So they've gathered lots and lots of research and reviewed it. That's what a research review does. Um, so just, I just want to pick up. So it's all about youth cultures and trends. Um, I'm not always a big fan of youth culture. I just think we have culture and we're all in it. But anyway, young people are also in the culture. But they do experience it in a particular way. But the trends are quite interesting. So um, about health and well-being, unsurprisingly, a huge increase in poor mental health amongst young people, an increase in self-harm, um, increase in suicide counselling being offered through Childline but interestingly and, and maybe I should have given a warning to this conversation but you can add that in Fiona but um, suicide rates have, have been maintained over the past number of years which makes you think maybe maybe the council, although the men- poor mental health is it continues to increase there's more opportunity for good care and conversation it's maybe not everybody's experience but that, that seems to be a trend in identity, young people, less young people identify. This is eight, I think it's ten to eighteen year olds, less are identifying as Christians, but there is an openness to God and to prayer in particular, which is a question. Therefore, how do we create that kind of space to to have those experiences? Uh, this generation of young people, I'm sure we talked about this before, um, they exhibit less risky behaviours. For example, and there's less under eighteen pregnancies than there's been for a number of decades, but a huge increase in knife crime, in vaping, 
and access to online porn. Which, so these are areas of concern among this age group. Um, this group of young people are more like a generation of young people. More, They're talking to their parents or carers more, but they're not eating with them as much. There's a huge increase in loneliness. Now, we often think of, as we talk in society, about loneliness as being an older person's problem, but it's a problem for young people who do less in-person socialising and they play less um, as a generation. And I think um, for the church, <laughs> you know, great opportunity to provide in-person experiences uh, for this generation of young people. Yeah, so I think we'll stop there. There's quite a lot there, but it's worth a worth a look if you want a quick overview of uh, trends in young people just now in, in the UK. And if you if you're part of the if you're part of the BB, there's also rec they've put in some recommendations, particularly for the BB, but they they would transfer into any a uh, Christian ministry context. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much. That sounds great. Um, I'm certainly going to go and have a look at that. Uh, next time, Jen, you'll be glad to hear we're doing the, the, the burning of the scrolls because we're in Ephesus great. and that's in Acts <laughs> chapter 19, verses 1 to 41. Uh, we're off to Ephesus and to a group of people about whom we know quite a lot. We thought we knew a lot about the Corinthians, the Ephesians. We know a lot about them. They pop up all over the place. Um, there is a link, as ever, in the show notes and you might want to take a glance at the letters to the Ephesians before we... Uh, before you listen to next time's episode in the meantime though thank you very much for listening join us then and i mean this is really just for the three of us but we've made it we've made it to the end because we've had a numerous we've had numerous failed attempts to do this episode we, we've <laughs> become one of those today, um so that's good thanks so we've become one of those podcasts where they talk about their technical difficulties it's, it's, podcasts yeah. quite often do that don't they <laughs> Yeah, they do. They do. Thank you for listening and join us next time. The Outspoken Bible is a podcast from Scottish Bible Society. To find ways you can share the Bible, go to scottishbiblesociety.org.